You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hello um, again. Uh, today's passage is in John, end of chapter 7, rolling over to chapter 8. Yep, cool. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Thanks, Christina, for that Bible reading. Uh, if you would like a, an outline, if you'd find that helpful as you go through, as we go through this passage together, uh, you can go to our welcome card online on our website. You'll see an outline for the passage, the, the text for today's passage. Um, that might be useful for you. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. It's great to see you here, even though it's the second long weekend in a row, and I know lots of people have had an extended holiday. Uh, it's great to see the faithful people here uh, for church today. Uh, let's pray as we come to think about this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this story from your word, uh, a story which yeah, can have some troubling elements. And so we pray that you'd give us uh, wisdom and understanding and that you'd speak clearly to us today. Amen. John 7, verse 53 to John 8, verse 11. What a troubling passage. As I see it, there's an, an historical problem and a contemporary problem. So let's start with the historical problem. Many of you will be aware of this, but this passage is not originally part of John's Gospel. What? Your Bible will probably have a note that says something like what mine says. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. My version even has these verses in italics. Now, if you're interested in all the details, um, there's some notes after the sermon outline on the website you can, can look up. I've also made up this little green sheet with some notes there. That's to spare you hearing it all in the sermon now. You can go grab it at the Welcome Hub later on and have a read through that. But here's a, a quick summary. Uh, this passage is not found in any versions of John's book until at least the 5th century. None of the Christian writers of the first three centuries quote from it, which is very unusual. 
the writing style doesn't even really match how John wrote and I think actually breaks the flow of the narrative in John 7 and 8. So for these reasons and more, some preachers would skip this passage altogether. But we shouldn't be too hasty. There's no reason to doubt the authenticity of this passage as a genuine story about Jesus. After all, it has all of the features you would expect from a story about Jesus, and it fits well with other events in his life. And we have to remember, we don't have every single deed of Jesus recorded in the Bible, do we? There were other written accounts, stories that were circulated around the church, and this one just happened to be added into the Bible later. But why is it here at the end of John chapter 7? It has the same geographical setting, so it's in Jerusalem, that's where Jesus is at the time in John's Gospel. Uh, it links to Jesus clashing with the Jewish teachers and the topic of how he doesn't judge people by human standards. But here's my theory as to why it's here in our Bibles at this place. Remember back in chapter 4 that Jesus spoke to a Samaritan woman. She'd engaged in a series of sexual relationships and she was now living with a man who wasn't her husband. And so she was a social outcast. That's why she was at the well in the middle of the day collecting water on her own. Jesus had a conversation with her about how he could give her water that would well up to eternal life. He spoke to her about salvation and forgiveness. In chapter 7, Jesus, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, we've seen that, and he's invited anyone who is thirsty to come to him and rivers of living water will flow within them. He's talking about eternal life. So perhaps someone who was copying down John's Gospel centuries ago thought that this would be a good place to insert another story about a woman engaged in sexual sin who has a life-changing encounter with Jesus. The history of this passage is troubling, but it doesn't mean we can't benefit from it. But if you do have questions about that whole idea, do come and talk to me afterwards. Another problem, which some of you might feel is an even bigger problem, is that this relates to a contemporary problem. Here is yet another example of a woman at the mercy of men. Surely you noticed this during the Bible reading. A woman has been caught having sex with a man who is not her husband. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees then drag her before Jesus and announce her sin to him. And they demand that Jesus pronounce a verdict on her. It's not so different in our day, is it? Now, how often does a sexual scandal erupt and it's the woman who's put under the spotlight? Powerful men, they're all wrapped up in their politics and competing with each other and they use women to score political points against their opponents. They decide the fate of these women while the guilty men remain hidden in the shadows or protected by their friends. This is an issue that plagues our society even today. But that's not the only reason that this troubles me. I mean, this is a troubling passage. But it troubles me because here I am, a man, who's about to speak about a woman at the mercy of men. Despite my best efforts, I'm not going to be able to truly understand her plight. 
and no doubt I'm going to misspeak or show my own blindness at points. I will draw connections or make statements that might be unhelpful for any women here today who've experienced or witnessed a similar situation. And so as we launch in this passage, I ask two things of you as those that God has called me to teach and care for. One, please pray for me. Say a silent prayer as we go through this passage. Pray for me, pray for us, that God would help the truth to shine through. And two, if you are troubled by this passage, by its content or even how I handle it, then please do speak to me afterwards or to someone else that you trust. This is a troubling passage. But you know, Jesus sees through the mess of this situation. He's not troubled. He perceives what needs to happen. He sees what the woman needs. He sees what the men need. And he even sees what you and I need. So let's get stuck into it. If you've got your Bibles open, it'd be great for you to have those verses in front of you. And right at the start, we see a woman's sin is exposed. Jesus has commenced an early morning teaching session at the temple. He's in one of the large open courtyards that anyone could freely visit. And suddenly a group of men burst in on the session and they thrust a woman into the midst of the crowd. These men include some teachers of the law or scribes who are known for their knowledge of Scripture. There are also Pharisees here who were known for their loyalty to Israel and to Israel's God and to the law of God. These are all highly religious men who take the law and the Word of God very, very seriously, or so they claim. And in verse 4, they say this to Jesus. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. It's a serious accusation, isn't it? The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Even today, God considers the marriage covenant to be sacred. When a man and a woman commit themselves to one another in marriage, it's a lifelong exclusive union. The union involves sharing of many parts of life, but one sharing that is particularly important is the sharing of their two bodies in physical intimacy. The sexual union of a man and a woman is what holds the one flesh union of marriage together. So for a married person to unite themselves sexually with someone who is not their spouse is a deep betrayal. And you know, I'm not just talking about sexual intercourse in the narrow sense. I'm not going to explain what I mean by that. Hopefully you know what I mean. But there are many ways that two people can be physically intimate in an inappropriate way. It's about sharing your body with someone, being one flesh with someone else. Adultery violates the marriage covenant and is never acceptable. We might try to sanctify this sin by using words like saying it's an affair or just fooling around or having an open marriage. But let's call it what it is, adultery. And it's a serious sin. And the woman standing before Jesus has been caught in the act of adultery. The text doesn't say that she was suspected, but she was discovered in this act. I don't even want to think about how that came about. What lengths these men must have gone to to catch her in the act. Although perhaps we could at least speculate that Jesus is teaching not long after dawn, and so she very may well have been dragged from the bed where she had been over to the temple courts. 
This is pretty full-on stuff, isn't it? She's being publicly exposed right in front of this group of men, in front of the people that Jesus was teaching, and right in front of Jesus himself. Now we need to notice one more detail before we move on. Have a look at the very end of the passage. Jesus tells this woman to leave her life of sin. In other words, Jesus acknowledges that she's an adulterer. It's important for us to remember that she's not an innocent victim, and that she's in fact guilty of what she's charged with. However, it's the way that she's been exposed that's the problem. And it's a scenario many women have faced, whether they were innocent or guilty. They are publicly disgraced and become an object for men to discuss and debate over. it's, It's bad enough that this woman has betrayed her husband by having sex with another man, But these Jewish teachers are using her. They're using her to set a trap for Jesus. It brings us to our next section. Let's have a look at verses 4 to 6. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. These experts of the law knew exactly what the sentence should be. Leviticus uh, Leviticus 20 verse 10 reads like this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? But remember... Adultery is a violation of the marriage covenant and the people of Israel were in covenant with God where faithfulness to Him was paramount. If two people betray their spouses, how would they view their relationship with God? And if a society could tolerate such behaviour, how would that impact on Israel's relationship with God? Sexual unfaithfulness could lead to spiritual unfaithfulness. So Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 declares that drastic action must be taken. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. This adulterous woman standing before Jesus deserved the death penalty according to the law of Israel. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Because... This is not about justice, rather about trapping Jesus. For starters, the law is very clear that both parties must be stoned. So where's the man? This is not about justice, this is about trapping Jesus. Now, the Jews had not actually followed the laws as closely as we might think. Public stoning of sinners was actually not a common occurrence. But here's how the trap works. These men know that if Jesus truly is a good teacher, then he can't oppose the law of God. And he had a reputation of being one who would show mercy and compassion to sinners. He spent time with outsiders and the unclean. But surely he couldn't ignore the law. And so if he declared that this woman should be shown mercy 
rather than executing the judgment laid out by God, than that they could prove that Jesus was not the Messiah. Isn't that shameful? These men are doing this publicly so they can trap Jesus. But as wicked as they are, it's an ingenious trap. Because if Jesus does follow through with the law and execute her, then he'll be breaking the Roman law. See, under Roman rule, the Jews couldn't carry out the death penalty. You, you might remember from John chapter 18, when the leaders, they insist that Pontius Pilate must judge Jesus because they don't have the right to execute anyone. And so the trap is that Jesus will either anger the Romans for breaking their law and usurping their authority, or he'll anger the Jews by rejecting their law. He'll either be exposed as not being the Messiah who will liberate Israel, or he won't be the compassionate teacher that he claims to be. It's ingenious in one sense. But like most political schemes, someone gets used at the pawn to bring down a political opponent. And perhaps that's why the woman is here and not the man. Because Jesus was particularly known to value women, to be a friend to women. I don't know about you, but if I was standing in that woman's shoes, I'd be pretty nervous right now. Surely there's no way out of this. Surely Jesus would see my sin and he would see that judgment was necessary. One way or another, my life is over. You know what? Jesus sees even more clearly. So he presents a challenge to these men. It's our next point. Let me read out verses 6 through 9. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. What on earth was Jesus drawing on the ground? Some people suggested he was writing out the law of God. Others suggest that he was writing out the sins of these men. In my first job, I worked with someone who'd grown up Greek Orthodox and her tradition taught that Jesus was drawing a perfect circle. I'm not quite sure exactly what the relevance of that is, but she was convinced that's what her tradition taught. There's lots of different ideas, but we can't actually know, can we? We're not told. But I think we can see why Jesus did it. See, I think it's a tactic gain the upper hand. He's slowing things down. He's kind of averting his gaze so these men can consider his words. And even though he's not looking at them, he sees right into their hearts. He knows what's really going on. Look again at the simple statement of verse 7. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's all he says. 
And eventually, every single one of the men depart. Why? Because as ingenious as their trap is, Jesus knows how to turn it back against them. I think his statement works at two levels. The first is that he challenges them in joining him in following the law. In the book of Deuteronomy, it was, Deuteronomy, it was the people themselves who executed the sentence. Where there were witnesses, the witnesses had to cast the first stone. That was partly to prevent people from bringing frivolous or false accusations. And so if the Jewish teachers are so confident that they witnessed this woman committing adultery, then they should cast the first stone. The trap has been turned on them because now they will be the ones breaking Roman law. The second level that this works at is at the heart level. Jesus says, let any of you who is without sin. Now, this can't mean that only sinless people can ever execute punishments because then God's law would never be able to be applied, would it? Rather, Jesus wants these men to demonstrate that they aren't adulterers themselves. And let's face it, the fact that they were able to catch this woman in adultery at just the right time to be able to drag her to Jesus suggests that they knew it was going to happen. It's very likely that they set her up to take advantage of her, to take advantage of her sin, rather than doing the right thing by preventing her sin. You see, one way or another, they are complicit in her sin. As the men watch Jesus silently drawing on the ground his perfect circle or his words, whatever he's writing, they would have each reflected on their own heart. They would have realized that for all their talk of wanting to uphold the law, here they were actually perverting the law of God. So they walk away one by one, starting with the older men who are perhaps wiser or perhaps are just more aware of their own sinfulness. And so that brings us to the final part of the passage where Jesus finally speaks to the woman. And what we'll see is that the woman's sin is not condemned. Verse 9 ends with only the woman and Jesus present. Uh, perhaps the crowd who'd been listening to Jesus' teaching are still there, but if we think about kind of the, the courtroom scenario, they're just onlookers. The courtroom is emptied and we have just the judge and the defendant. Let's see what happens in verses 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't judge the woman. She's free to go. Her life was on the line and it looked like there was no way out Yet Jesus has again shown himself to be the compassionate Messiah who upholds the law while reaching out to sinners. Yay, Jesus. So before we move on to some application, there are two questions that I think are worth answering. You might have more. You can come and talk to me later. First up, is Jesus condoning adultery? Some people read this passage and feel that Jesus is saying that adultery is not really a big deal or at the very least, he's not concerned about what people do in bed with each other. He's concerned about bigger things. 
In fact, there's speculation that the reason why this passage is not found in earlier copies of John is that the early church felt that way and so they ripped it out because they thought Jesus was condoning adultery and it wasn't until later it was put back in. Now, this could be backed up by how Jesus says he does not condemn the woman. However, we can't forget those last words that Jesus shares. Go now and leave your life of sin. She had indeed committed sin and Jesus tells her to stop doing it. He's not condoning her sin, but neither is he condemning her to death on that day for it. Yeah, this actually fits with some other passages from John's Gospel, which could be another reason why this story is in John's Gospel as opposed to the other books about Jesus. John 3.17, we all know John 3.16, don't we? But what comes straight after that, John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. In John 8, verse 15, not far away from this passage, Jesus says, You judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. And perhaps the clearest place is chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Jesus does not condemn this woman and execute judgment because his job is to save her. The Father will judge her and all other adulterers on the last day. Which leads us to a second question. Was this woman forgiven? Maybe. I know that might be frustrating, but I I just don't think we know. When Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. That's not quite the same as saying, I forgive you. He says that in other places to other people, doesn't he? Go, your sins have been forgiven. Rather, I believe he's giving her a second chance to turn from her ways and to believe in him. You know, this passage doesn't teach us that sometimes Jesus saves people who give no sign of faith. That's not what this is teaching. See, he offers salvation to all who will believe in him and we don't, know what this woman thought of him. But if she did believe, she would have been saved. In any case, Jesus lets this woman leave with some dignity. She'd merely been bait in the trap of the Jews. Her sin had been exposed and she was dehumanised in the process. And after the men left, Jesus looked up and he saw her. He really looked at her. He saw who she was, he saw what she'd done, and he had compassion by saying that he would not condemn her. But he also had compassion by warning her to stop sinning. He saw her need and he sought to meet it. That's what the passage is about. That's why this passage is so important for us today. You see, Jesus sees your sin but he came to save you, not condemn you. Surely that is the greatest news you'll ever hear. Jesus sees your sin, but he came to save you, not condemn you. And so as we apply this passage to ourselves, I want to share three ideas with you about how wonderful it is that Jesus sees you. 
The first is that Jesus sees your unfaithfulness and hypocrisy, and that's why he died for you. Yeah, there are two types of people in this passage. The first type we see in the woman who had been unfaithful. She'd been unfaithful to her husband and to her God. And let's be honest, we are all unfaithful in different ways. It may not be through sexual sin, but we've broken the trust of others. We've been unfaithful to God. We've not loved Him the way we should. The other type of people in this passage are the Jewish men with their hypocritical hearts. They claim to be on about justice, but really they're lawbreakers too, who simply want to beat Jesus. And let's be honest, we are all hypocrites in various ways. It may not be through publicly accusing people of adultery, but we have pointed out the sins of others while seeking to cover up our own sins. You might be able to hide your unfaithfulness and hypocrisy from your friends, your family, your church, your leaders, your pastors, but you can't hide them from Jesus. He knows because he sees you. And that's why he died for you. You see, for there to be true justice, sin must be condemned. And so Jesus was condemned in your place. There's a great freedom in this. See, Jesus already knows that you're an unfaithful hypocrite. He already knows that I'm an unfaithful hypocrite. And he looks at us with love. And so we don't need to cover it up. We don't need to pretend. He already knows. There's nothing you've done that Jesus doesn't see. And so we come before him in faith and we ask him to forgive us. And so if you haven't done this before, if you haven't come to Jesus and asked him to forgive you, then why not make today the day? Stop running, stop hiding, stop pretending. Pray that Jesus would take your guilt and shame away so that you would no longer stand condemned in the eyes of God. And then go, leave your life of sin, and follow Jesus. There's something else that Jesus sees. He sees how your sin hurts you. And so he helps and defends you. you know, I'm pretty confident that every adult in this room has engaged in sexual sin of some sort. And I include myself in that. Perhaps it is adultery, like this woman. Perhaps it's having sex before marriage. Perhaps pressuring your spouse to do sexual acts they aren't comfortable with. Looking at pornography and lusting after men and women, treating them as objects rather than God's image bearers. See, we might be able to hide those sexual sins from others, but Jesus sees. Jesus sees all of your sins. But you know, he doesn't pick up a stone to kill you because he picked up a cross and was killed for you. He's already paid the price. That's how much he loves you. He did that to save you from your sin because he knows that your sin hurts you. And he shows his ongoing love by helping you today, every day. He gives you the power to leave your life of sin behind. It's easy to say, go and sin no more. 
that might last until the next day when you wake up and you feel tempted to sin again. Jesus sends his, his Spirit to help you, to strengthen you, to say no to sin. He shows you how to live for God. He gives you a church family. Jesus sees how sin hurts you and he helps you. He helps you to deal with the consequences of your sin. And if you have committed adultery, then you might lose your marriage, your position of leadership in the church. You may lose some friends, but you know what? There's help and there's healing. There's restoration. Jesus will be there. And Jesus will also defend you. Did you notice that he doesn't play the Jewish men's game by turning the woman back against them? He's not getting caught up in their tactics. He he deals with them directly and he defended her. In the same way, he defends you against those who would use your sin against you. The things that you've done in the past, they come back to haunt you. People use it against you to to condemn or control you, to manipulate you, to, to blackmail you. Whether it's friends, family, workmates, even the devil himself. You might feel trapped, but these people control you and there's no way out. There's nothing you can do. Well, that's what this woman thought. So let me reassure you that there is no situation that is too tricky for Jesus to help you because Jesus sees you and he helps you. So if you're here today and you feel the burden of what you have done, or if you are feeling manipulated or pressured by others, people using your past sin to control you, or if you simply cannot shake off your past, then please do speak to me. Speak to someone you trust. There is hope, there is help, there is healing. And I should point out too that there may be people here today who are innocent victims of sexual sin. You know, others have taken advantage of you. So I want you to know, I haven't been talking about you today. This passage is not about you. But be assured that Jesus sees you too. And he loves you too. And he offers you help and he will defend you as well. Jesus will help you. And you know, we want the church to be a place where people have hope and can be helped, where we see each other. Finally, Jesus sees your heart, so pray for wisdom and compassion in dealing with the sins of others. You know, there's a wrong way that we could apply this passage. And it would be to say that we can never point out someone's sin and bring about punishment. We should just be forgiving and not worry about those things. But how horrific would it be for a man or woman to sexually sin against someone and then say, you can't do anything about it because you're not perfect either. And people have said that sort of thing, haven't they? Maybe we've even thought it ourselves. It's not what Jesus is teaching here. The reason that he spoke and acted in the way he did is because he saw the hypocrisy in the hearts of those men. He saw their self-righteousness. They were not interested in justice. They were not interested in what would be helpful for this woman. They didn't want her to receive mercy and to turn her life around. They didn't want her to be faithful. They didn't care about her. 
And so when we confront sin, we need to check our own hearts, consider our own motivations. Are we doing it for the other person's benefit, to help them, or are we doing it for our own benefit? This is so hard to do. And it can cause us to be reluctant to ever call out sin because we're so aware of our own sinfulness. But that doesn't help either, does it? So we must pray to Jesus because he's the source of wisdom and compassion. We must look to his example and we should draw upon his mercy. I know that the church has a mixed track record when it comes to dealing with sin, particularly sexual sin involving men. That's why we need the mercy and help that Jesus brings. So let's commit to praying for one another, praying for our church leaders. And may you always remember that Jesus sees your sin, but he came to save you, not condemn you. Isn't that wonderful news? Let's pray. Father God, we feel the weight of this passage, of this teaching. No doubt some of these things have been hard to hear, they've been hard to say. But we know that you help us. You can help us to to deal with truth. You can help us to become more merciful and compassionate. And you liberate us from the chains and bondage of the things that we've done in the past. Because we know that you sent your son not to condemn us, but to save us. And so may we draw great comfort from that, help and strength, and know the liberation we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.